Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. It is good to be back with you. I was actually with you last week. You just didn't know it. I was uh, down on the beach, and I was sitting on the balcony of our condo watching this service with you. And then as soon as it was over, I went out on the beach. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't do that today because I'm back with you. Uh, But I want to begin today by asking you a question. If you could have one wish, what would it be? This is not the genie in the bottle, three wishes. You just get one. And so you're going to have to make that one wish really count. Now, perhaps your answer might be the ones we used to hear at the beauty pageants. What I wish for is world peace. And actually, that's not a bad wish these days if you're following the news. Or maybe your wish is something similar to that, but just a little bit different. Maybe you want justice for the oppressed. Again, that's certainly in the news these days, and a a worthy desire, and we're actually going to talk more about that because it's here in our story this morning. But if we're honest, many of us, given one wish, would probably wish for something more personal, or dare I say more selfish. Money would top the list of many people. We might even try to convince ourselves that it's not just for me, But if I had all the money that I wanted, I could not only solve my own problems, but I could help solve the problems of others as well. Maybe those who are struggling physically have come to the place in their lives where they realize money does not solve everything. And so your answer to the one wish might be long life or renewed health. All of this, of course, is in the realm of dreams or fantasies because you know that I can't provide you the answers to these wishes anyway. I cannot give you what you want, but what if it was God doing the asking? What if it was God who had unlimited resources saying to you, ask me what you want, whatever it is, and I will give it to you? Now, I'm not saying God is doing that. This is not a name it and claim it sermon. But I am saying God did do it in the story in the Old Testament that we are going to examine today. God told King Solomon that he could ask for anything he wanted and God would give it to him. So what was Solomon's one wish? Well, you probably know that already. He asked God for wisdom. And as a result, he became the wisest man of his day. So we are starting a series this morning, a brief series, on wisdom. Something everybody needs, and yet I'm convinced very few actually possess. And we are starting today with the pursuit of wisdom. This pursuit is as old as mankind itself. You certainly remember the tragic fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. But what you might not remember is one of the little phrases in there. You might have missed that part. The Bible says that Eve looked at the tree that had been forbidden by God. You can eat of any of these trees except this one. 
And Eve looked at the tree and saw that it was delightful to look at, and it was good for food. But the third phrase says this, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Eve wanted wisdom, and she was willing to go after it, even if it meant that she was going to have to sin to get it. And ever since then, men and women have desired wisdom, have pursued wisdom, but not necessarily in the right place or from the right person. So the desire for wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom, is a good thing. It is a biblical thing, as long as we search for it in the right place and for the right purpose. Now, the easiest thing for me to do this morning would perhaps be to go to the the book of James, where James tells us very clearly, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and God will give it to him generously. But instead of going there, which we probably will in the weeks to come, I decided to go to an Old Testament story that shows the principle that James is stating. These two agree with one another. James says, ask and God will give it to you. And this Old Testament story shows us that God indeed did do that. You know, I scanned all of my sermon titles and found only two with the word wisdom in it. Over all the years, only two that seemingly had anything to do with wisdom. And as significant and important as this topic is, that's an oversight on my part. So look with me at 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses. And again, we are thinking today about the pursuit of wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. 
Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. Every good story has a conflict or a problem. That conflict or problem is presented and a main character in the story is going to have to figure out some way to solve the problem. And that is true not only in a novel, it is true in the biblical stories as well. And so we begin this morning with the problem. Solomon has a problem and it's a problem that needs to be addressed. But before we get there, We've got to understand just a little bit about the historical background or context that has led up to this moment. You know that Solomon is the son of David, the third king to rule over the United Kingdom of Israel. And he certainly had big shoes to fill. After all, the Bible says of his father that David was a man after God's own heart. David has left him a kingdom or a reign whose borders have been expanded and whose enemies have been conquered. And as a result, Solomon's reign is going to be a peacetime reign. And as a result of that, he can concentrate on trading or commerce, the economy, and building, which is why we know him as the king who built the temple for God. In fact, we call it Solomon's temple or the temple of Solomon. We also, of course, know him to be a man of wisdom. And yet we must admit that there are clearly some flaws in his life. That's why I read you the first couple of verses. I didn't want to jump into the chapter, but I really didn't need to start until verse 3. But I read you the first two verses because I want you to see that Solomon has some flaws in his life. He married women who were outside of Israel, something God expressly forbid his people to do. Now, I do want you to understand so that there is no misunderstanding. This was not a racial prohibition. This was a religious one. God knew that if his people married outside of Israel, that they would be inclined to worship the foreign gods of those whom they have married, which is exactly what is going to happen to Solomon. You remember a couple weeks ago, we finished our study of 1 John. Do you remember the last thing John said in that letter? Little children, keep yourselves from idols, which is what Solomon did not do. Solomon's disavowal of God's command to marry outside of Israel is going to lead him into idolatry. So Solomon is a man that we are told here loves the Lord, and yet he also sacrifices at the high places. This was a phrase that was used in the Old Testament to refer to elevated places throughout the the rule there where people worshipped. And it was generally that they were worshipping foreign gods. And thus the phrase, the high places, became virtually synonymous with idolatry. And again, God specifically told his people that when they captured a people, they were to destroy the high places. And yet again again and again in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we read something like this, but the high places he did not destroy, referring to the king. Now there is some debate in Solomon's case 
Because after all, the temple has not been built yet. So some say that it was okay for Solomon to go there because he was worshiping the one true God, given the fact that the temple had not been built, and given the fact that God shows up and is pleased with him. But regardless, these are ominous warnings on the horizon of Solomon's life that even a man known for his wisdom has some very serious flaws. Come to think of it, Solomon's a lot like us, isn't he? He loves the Lord. There is no doubt about that. But Solomon has some other loves in his life as well. Other loves that are going to compete with his love for the Lord and eventually are going to lead to his spiritual leadership being hindered. But this is not a study of the life of Solomon. I've never done that study. I've done many character studies from the Old Testament, but for some reason I've never done Solomon. But we're not doing that this morning. We're looking at one event in the life of Solomon. And this one event occurs during the first four years of his reign. We know that because in chapter 6 we are told that in the fourth year he begins building the temple. So this is early in his reign. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is Solomon has some personal limitations. In other words, he does not feel competent nor confident to lead. You know, we often assume that leaders especially leaders in very high places, have all the confidence in the world. And in fact, oftentimes they act like it. But what we sometimes don't realize is that they have the insecurities that all the rest of us have. Tracy was telling me about a podcast she was listening to recently from the Gospel Coalition. And in that podcast, they referenced a a, a question that Oprah Winfrey was asked. She was asked on one occasion by somebody, I know not who, she was asked, what in all of the interviews that you've done, what have you learned about people? And her answer was this. She said, no matter who it is, whether it's a president of the United States, whether it's a famous movie star or athlete, or whether it's someone whose name we don't really know, but they've done something worthy enough to get them an interview on the Oprah Winfrey show. She said, no matter who it is, invariably after the interview is over, They will ask me off camera, off stage, how did I do? You see, everyone wants to know, did I do okay? Was that good? Solomon has a problem, and that problem is he does not feel competent to lead. In spite of the fact that he'd been raised in David's house, in spite of the fact that he has had the position of king now for several years, Solomon's problem is he doesn't know what he's doing. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 7. In verse 7, that phrase there, he says, I'm a little child. That doesn't mean he's literally a little child. But look at the, the other phrase. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. What that really means there is I don't know how to rule. That's what he's saying. I don't know what I'm doing. And in verse 8, he, he cites the fact that these are God's people and they are numerous. So this is a great burden upon the shoulders of Solomon. And yet, isn't this the first step to wisdom? To be humble enough to admit that you need help from someone else. As you well know, this is Father's Day. And we dads need to admit that we are not experts at fathering. And it's okay to admit that at some times in our lives, the task seems overwhelming and we simply do not know what to do. And the same is true of mothering which is just an example of the fact that wisdom is something that is necessary for all different avenues 
of life. So Solomon takes the first step in the pursuit of wisdom and in the solving of his problem. He knows his personal limitations, but then he takes the second step, which is equally important, and that is he turns to God's limitless resources. This is equally important because while you might recognize you need some help in parenting or whatever the problem is, if you go to the wrong place or to the wrong person, you're going to get the wrong answer. Why do you think that many of these things in life these days are so popular? Why are talk shows that that meet out advice so popular? Why are self-help books that have their own section in the bookstores so popular? Why is coaching, not a a team, but coaching one-on-one, why is that such a big thing these days? It's because people know they need help, they need wisdom to live their lives, and they're searching for that help. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you can't learn something from a talk show or a self-help book or that coaching won't somehow help you along the way. There's nothing inherently wrong about any of those things. They can be helpful especially if they come from a Christian worldview or perspective. But ultimately, we need to turn to the God of limitless resources. The same God that I've already mentioned has promised to give us wisdom when we ask in faith. So Solomon has a problem. That problem is he has some personal limitations. He does not know what he's doing. But he turns to the right place. And that is God's limitless resources. He's off to a good start in this pursuit of wisdom. So from the problem, we move to the prayer, which is always a good place to go when we have a problem. So King Solomon has been worshiping the Lord and offering sacrifices. And now for the first time, he's going to have a direct encounter with God. This will actually occur a second time in his life. And both of these direct encounters with God, God is going to emphasize his covenant with his father David and God's desire to bless Solomon if he will be faithful in following the Lord. Now, this encounter occurs in a dream, which does not mean that you should expect the same thing, nor that you should come to me later today and say those dreaded words that we all hate to hear, Let me tell you about the dream I had last night. And then expect that I'm somehow going to be able to interpret it. Most dreams are best left in our minds. Solomon's is the exception. So in this dream, God makes an offer. Verse 5, Solomon, you can have one request. That's why I started the sermon with that question. God says to Solomon, ask me for anything you want and I will give it you. And we've already talked about the fact that God is limitless. There are no conditions placed on what he could ask for. But what he asks for is going to reveal his character and his priorities. And if you didn't know the story already, and I'm confident most of us do, and of course we've already read it and know what he asked for, but if you didn't know that, this is the point in the story where you're sitting on the edge of your seat thinking to yourself, Well, of all the things that are possible, what is he going to ask for? Well, before we get there, I want you to see what Solomon declines first. You know, those selfish requests that are at the forefront of our minds, if we're willing to be honest, 
Those are the things that he did not ask for. Verse 11 tells us that God was pleased that Solomon had not not asked for three common things. Number one, he had not asked for long life. But wouldn't that be a good thing to possess? To know that you have a promise from God that you're not going to die prematurely? Secondly, he does not ask for riches. And we've already acknowledged that wealth or money would probably be at the top of many of our wish lists. Thirdly, he does not ask for victory over his enemies. And while that would not be on top of our list, it was certainly an issue in his day. Because in those times, there was always someone willing to cross the border and pick a fight with you to try to get your land and resources for themselves. But declining all of these things tells us just how difficult of a problem he had. He knew how desperately he needed wisdom in governing the people and ruling as a king. So God offers, Solomon declines the, what we would consider to be the normal stuff, and instead Solomon's desire is this, and again, you know the answer, it is wisdom. And he prefaces the actual request with a bit of history. Concerning how God has been gracious to both himself and to his father David, he knows full well that it is God who has put him on the throne. And by the way, that's something the Bible says that is true of any government. Any governmental leader is on the throne because God has put them there. And many governmental leaders would do well to come to terms with that. And this is coupled with his own inferiority about leading something we've already examined, all of, it, all of which leads us to verse 9, where we find the actual request. He wants wisdom. And while our task today is not to define nor describe wisdom, we'll do that in the weeks ahead. Verse 9 does help us out there. Look at verse 9 again. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. So wisdom has something to do with the mind. That is, knowledge is involved But it is more than knowledge. Because he goes on to say, to govern your people, that is to to do something with it, so that I might discern between good and evil. So wisdom is knowledge applied. Knowledge put into practice or put into action. And in this case, it's for the purpose of justice. That is so he can discern good and evil and govern the people. And we'll come back to that as we close in just a few moments. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago, as we ended 1 John, we were talking about prayer. And I gave you some questions to ask to try to determine whether or not your prayer request is in the will of God. And one of those questions was, does it advance the kingdom of God? And here we see an example of that. Solomon, in prayer, is asking a kingdom-minded request. He doesn't ask selfishly for fame or fortune. It's not about his name being remembered or his rule being uh, kept. Instead, he asks a kingdom-minded prayer request, and God answers. In fact, God gives him all of those other things as well. Though, again, this is not a promise that the same will be true for you. But it does remind me of something Jesus said. Jesus was discussing the the fact that so many people focus on their basic needs. And yet he said to them, seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these other things will be added unto you. And again, that was in the context of basic needs, not an abundance of wealth. 
but the, both of these passages remind us of the priority of the kingdom of God being first in our life rather than our own empire. And so in verse 12, God answers. He had offered Solomon. Solomon had told him what he wanted. So we fully expect that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And he answers and gives him so much more. So much more that Solomon's name is now associated with wisdom. After all of these many years, we still say the phrase, the wisdom of Solomon. That is how generous and gracious God was in answering this prayer request, such that Solomon becomes the wisest man to ever live. And you say, well, how does Solomon know that he received wisdom? I mean, how will the people know that Solomon has wisdom? I mean, we know because we're reading the story and we know the rest of his life. We know that God said he's going to give it and we believe that God is going to do what he says. But how does Solomon know when he wakes up that this was not just a dream? I mean, he wakes up and he says, well, I had this dream. Let me run it by you. And somebody says, oh, that was just a dream, Solomon. It was a fitful night of restlessness. It doesn't really mean anything. So how do we know that Solomon really has this wisdom? What we need is a test case. We need an example to see whether Solomon has the wisdom that can be applied to a given situation. And that is exactly what the rest of the chapter is all about. So we started with his problem. And then we saw his prayer asking for wisdom. And now we move to the prostitutes. You say, wait, wait a minute. I mean, we've taken a turn here. I mean, first of all, that's not a very good word to use, especially in a sermon. But it is the word that the text used, so I've just kept it. Second of all, this progression, I don't know that I've ever heard that. The problem, the prayer, and then we go to the prostitutes. I mean, that just doesn't seem like a logical progression. But it is what happens here. We are introduced to two women. We are now in the red light district of Jerusalem, a place that no tour group ever goes to. And here we find a very pitiful scene on every level. This is one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. I've not read it for you, but I'm going to summarize it for you. But it is so well-known that many of you are already thinking about the Seinfeld episode that dealt with it. If you watch that show, you remember that Kramer and Elaine are having an argument over a bicycle. They're having the argument because they've made an agreement and now they both believe the bicycle belongs to them. And so for some reason, they decide they're going to go to Newman, the postman. And Newman is going to dispense the wisdom. He's going to tell them after hearing their stories, which one of them is the rightful owner of the bike. And they agree to abide by whatever he says. And so Newman eventually says, divide the bike in half and each of you can have half of it. And Elaine says, that's exactly right, do it. And Kramer says, no, no. The bike would not be useful in that circumstance. Even if she gets the bike and I don't, I would rather the bike be true to who it is and its nature and be usable than have it torn apart. And so Newman says, Kramer, you are the rightful owner of the bike because you are the one who cared enough, whether it was yours or not, to let her have it. Now, I'm not trying to say Newman is as wise as Solomon. Again, if you watch the show, you know that's not remotely true. 
What I am saying is here's a television show whose writers and producers, I can only assume, are not believers. And yet they knew enough about this story to make it a contemporary episode in their television show. And so we return to the actual story. And here we have a legal dispute. Although there are no lawyers, there are no legal representatives at all, there are no eyewitnesses, this is a child custody case, and you know how difficult those can be. And so we first see the dilemma of these two ladies. They've both given birth, no doubt as a result of the line of work that they are involved in, but during one fateful night, one of the women rolls over and accidentally and tragically suffocates her child. And so she notices that and sees that the other woman, her child is still alive. So during the night, while the other woman sleeps, she switches the babies. She puts her dead baby in the other woman's bed, and she takes the live baby into her bed. And when the other woman wakes up in the morning, she is devastated that the baby is dead. However, upon closer examination, she determines that the dead baby is not hers. And so we have two moms and one living baby and no eyewitnesses. Both of these women claiming that the baby belongs to them, how in the world is anyone going to get to the truth? There are no rule books to consult. There are no laws to apply. This is a classic she said, she said dispute with seemingly no way of drilling down to the truth. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And somehow, these two women wind up before the, the king, which in passing is a good reminder that everyone deserves justice. These women, who by all accounts must have been considered outcasts in society, do have their moment before the king. So justice is not just for those who can afford it. Justice is not just for those who have the proper lineage. Justice in a God-fearing society ought to be for everyone. So how does Solomon respond to their dilemma? Well, obviously, he's going to make a decision. And so he says, bring me a sword. I'm going to cut the baby in two, and each of you can have half a baby. Now, again, we know the rest of the story. But let's pretend for a moment that we didn't. And we are eyewitnesses to this decision, which doesn't sound much like a decision, does it? This is certainly not wisdom. You mean to tell me that your great wisdom is leading you to say, what we're going to do is bisect the baby and each of you can have half. That's folly, not wisdom. But Solomon knows in his wisdom that the reaction to this decision is what is ultimately going to be important that the women's character and who the true mother is, is going to come out in their reaction. So this decision is designed for a response. Wisdom tells him that a mother would sacrifice anything to save her child. And most parents would understand this because even to our day, most parents would willingly sacrifice anything, even their own life, if necessary, for the sake of their children. Now, most of our sacrifices do not reach that ultimate level. And yet we sacrifice on a daily basis, many of those sacrifices going unnoticed and certainly unappreciated. And so the true mother's compassion comes out passionately, willing to have the baby go to the other woman 
for the sake of keeping that baby alive. Let the deceiver have the baby rather than the baby face death. And while the cruelty of the other mother is also on display, she says to herself, if she can't have the baby that is alive, then nobody should have a baby. She should have the same predicament that I have. And so the king's decision is for the child to go to the compassionate woman, who is clearly his real mother. And in the process, the king has determined this child's destiny. Wisdom has saved the life of a child and reunited that child with its rightful mother, a truly astounding solution to a difficult dilemma. And this is certainly one of the areas in which wisdom is to be applied to the family. It is clear that families today need a good dose of godly wisdom. Now, that's the end of our story, but in conclusion, I want to, I want to draw two applications, one corporate and one personal. So let's begin with the corporate application. And by corporate, I mean group or, or even society. I mean, this applies to all of us, not just those who are here, but a society. Look at verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. I don't need to remind you that justice, social justice, is a huge topic today. People are angry. They are violent. They are confused and frustrated. The adjectives could go on and on. Others are speaking out about what needs to be done or what should have been done in the past so that we wouldn't be experiencing what we do, are doing in the present. And yet many of us don't know what to do. We're watching the videos. We're seeing what's going on. We're wishing that folks could be satisfied and we could have peace. But we just don't know what the solution is. And believe me, I am not claiming to have all of the answers. I'm as frustrated about it as many of you are. But I do know one answer, and it is an answer that we find in the text here. What we are seeing is a lack of wisdom leading then to a lack of justice. And we've seen this all around. You say, I, I, know, I know you might be quick to think, you're exactly right. The other political party has a lack of wisdom, and they're ruining this country. Or that particular group or that particular movement has a lack of wisdom, and if they thought more like me, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. I want you to understand I am not pointing my finger in this application at any political party or any organization or any movement. There is enough blame to go around for me to simply say there is a lack of general wisdom leading to all kinds of chaos, which includes the lack of justice. And so if we want justice, we need to be pursuing wisdom and praying for those in leadership that they might have the wisdom of God. You see, Solomon knew what he needed. Most people today are too busy assuming that they already have all of the answers and it's the people on the other side who don't. And therefore, they're not pursuing wisdom, the very thing that they need. The second application is personal. And by that I mean you and I personally need to humbly admit that we need wisdom and therefore pursue it biblically. So you say, well, is this a call then to be more like Solomon? This is what we often do with Old Testament stories. We read the story and then we can come to the conclusion. And the conclusion is what you really need is to be a little bit more like Solomon. 
And there's actually some truth to that, but that's not the whole story. Jesus on one occasion was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. They were asking him for a sign. And in answering them, he referenced three Old Testament events, two having to do with Jonah. The first was Jonah in the belly of the fish. The second was the repenting of the people at Nineveh when Jonah went and preached. And then the third thing he referenced was a story that's found in 1 Kings chapter 10, just a few chapters later from what we're looking at this morning. It is the story of the Queen of Sheba who comes to see for herself. She's heard about it, so she comes to see for herself the wisdom of Solomon. And after all of that, Jesus says, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He was, of course, referring to himself. A much wiser God-man than the man Solomon could ever be. Paul says in Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So my conclusion is not be like Solomon. Instead, I'm urging you to pursue Christ. He is the source of wisdom. True, godly, and biblical wisdom will not be found apart from Him. That is not to say that people in the world cannot have some wisdom. I'm not saying that. But we're not talking about worldly wisdom. We're talking about godly wisdom, and that cannot be found apart from Christ. So pursuing wisdom cannot come apart from pursuing Christ. The truth is many of us are pursuing many things, and they may not be bad things, but we're pursuing many things. We need to be pursuing wisdom, which means pursuing Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for this story that has been recorded for us so that we might learn more about you. And I do pray that we would pursue Christ And in Christ we would find are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.